Jamal Khashoggi is missing, presumed kidnapped. In case you don't know who that is, let me give you a quick bio. He's a Saudi journalism heavyweight who made his career in the 80s and 90s as a foreign correspondent for Saudi newspapers across the Middle East, even interviewing Osama bin Laden in the Tora Bora Mountains of Afghanistan. In the 2000s, he rose to editorship of several newspapers in the country and also served as a royal advisor. That's why he's been seen as close to the ruling family and very aware of what's going on. And he has 1.67 million Twitter followers. But in September 2017, he left Saudi Arabia. It was six months after he received an official ban on writing and tweeting, in the midst of Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman's campaign of silencing every independent voice in the country. You can find out more about that on episodes 1 and 8 of this podcast. After relocating to the US, Jamal wrote a column for the Washington Post in which he said the following. My friends and I living abroad feel helpless. We want our country to thrive and to see the 2030 vision realized. We are not opposed to our government and care deeply about Saudi Arabia. It is the only home we know or want, yet we are the enemy. This March, here's what he said to Mehdi Hassan on Al Jazeera's Upfront program. You no longer live in Saudi Arabia. You've said that friends of yours have been arrested and detained. You've said that friends of yours in Saudi think twice about sharing whatever isn't fully in line with official government groupthink, you've said. Uh, why are you in quote-unquote self-exile? Explain that to our viewers. Simply because I don't want to be arrested. I don't want to be next to Osama al-Zamil or, or Salman al-Auda. This Tuesday, the 2nd of October, Jamal entered the Saudi consulate in Istanbul to get some paperwork done. Not unusual, he's charged with no crime in his country, and the consulates are obliged to provide services to all citizens. But he hasn't been seen since. The Saudi government insists he left the consulate, and the Turkish government says he's still inside. We were with Jamal at the Oslo Freedom Forum five months ago. Here's a section of our discussion, so you can understand a bit more about him and what it means that this is happening. So we're sitting in the press center of uh, the Oslo Freedom Forum, and we're sitting here with Mr. Jamal Khashoggi, who is a Saudi journalist uh, and probably one of the most famous and notable Arab journalists of his generation. Mr. Jamal currently living in D.C., let's say in exile, uh, after the recent changes in Saudi government. And we're here to, to ask him a few questions, not only about his impressions about the Oslo Freedom Forum, but also about uh, Saudi Arabia, about the future of the Arab world, and about the prospects of reform in the region. And, you know, this podcast is called the Arab Tyrant Manual. This is how it started. It started actually as a project to document the, the similarity between different dictatorships. Um, and the repression or how the techniques are similar. And also the struggle for freedom is similar. When, when the Arab Spring started, I wrote an article uh, where I predicted that many of what happened in Tunisia will happen everywhere else. And they were, and, 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 and it did happen in, in Yemen and uh, in, in Syria, of course, with different results. But uh, yeah, dictators, they learn from each other. They even learn when, uh, when they see how the West, the European Union, for example, uh, when one country succeed in overcoming pressure from 
the European Union or from the Americans, they want to learn how we can do that too, how we can get the Americans off our shoulder the same way Sisi got the Americans off our shoulder. And uh, so, yeah, they, they do like share a manual, but there is something also we they talked about in the forum, which is interesting. Uh, as much as social media that scared Arab dictators at the beginning of Arab Spring, even a joke was said once that one of the Arab monarchs suggested that we should buy Facebook and shut it down. It was a joke, it's not true. Uh, the dictators, the Arab regimes, they learned how to manipulate the social media. Yani, they can, if, you, if you cannot beat those young people, it's, uh, join them. Join them. So they are joining uh, in, in many forms, in, uh, in the form of electronic armies, uh, uh, utilizing uh, uh, social media, uh, spying on the people, trying to uh, find out using experts uh, through IP addresses, uh, the, the, the activists, and go after them in, uh, in many countries, including my country. There are uh, individuals who are being sentenced in jail for a tweet they made. Yeah, and this is actually fresh news that we just got right now, that uh, Emirati authorities have sentenced Ahmad Mansour, who was the last uh, remaining independent voice for human rights in the country. He's, been, he's just been sentenced to 10 years in prison. Because of tweets he made? Uh, uh, well, it was actually, he was arrested mm. on, the, on the background of tweeting. Mm. Uh, but I think the official charge, I haven't re- read the entire uh, uh, statement yet, but it seems that the official charge is contacting human rights organizations. So they're actually literally uh, putting a human rights activist in jail for the crime of being a human rights activist. Yeah, they've been doing that for, for years, but I'm, I'm, but I'm referring to tweeting and putting posts in, uh, in, in Facebook. It's becoming, it is being criminalized also. Uh, and uh, not only for uh, individuals who are using their true name, but even activists who are not using their true name, but uh, the, the, the governments are learning how to track them down uh, and, 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 and go after them and taking their tweets into the court and, and, and sentencing them. What is more scary is that journalist who was in China, the Chinese government with their vast knowledge in, in IT, uh, they are beginning to um, monitor the people in Kashgar, East Turkestan, as we call it, and Xinjiang, as, as they call it. And uh, this is a scary technology. Absolutely. Uh, maybe there is a need for uh, yani freedom-loving people to, as much as governments are uh, using technology to suppress activists or uh, freedom organization like the Forum, they need to develop also a mechanism to counter such, uh, such, such power. From, Absolutely. Uh, it's a, one, one recurring theme in the Forum, of course, a lot of technologists come to the Forum, a lot of panels about technology. Uh, but as human rights activists and the activism community in general, we have become very sens- sensitive towards the topic of technological utopianism, where people who think that technology is going to solve all the problems, because technology has a dark side as well. It can empower uh, governments to create the kind of mass surveillance that we see in uh, in China. I know, for, I mean, I can speak on about the United Arab Emirates because I know they subcontract this to Italian companies, to even uh, Ahmed Mansour, uh, actually uh, was spied upon with a piece of software uh, a few years ago 
which they spent a million dollars to develop a piece of software specifically for his iPhone. So there is also the supply chain. Sometimes they don't have to develop the technology uh, themselves. They can actually subcontract it from another company. And the company can be in a country that pre- pretends to be a liberal democracy. The, the vast, the deep pockets of the Gulf states uh, have been a lawyer for many, uh, for many um, outsiders trying to make a buck on the quick, uh, knowing full well that they're not going to have face any consequences because I remember the bit, um, before the Arab uprisings when some of us started raising concerns about uh, surveillance technologies, the response, for example, in Iran at the time, Siemens uh, built uh, an entire telecom hub and was actively assisting the Iranian crackdown on, on the internet. The response was like, well, if we don't sell it, the Chinese will sell it. So it better be us. But flipping back a little bit to Stelzio Mel, you, you, you're an insider's insider. You're someone who has uh, seen the permutations of the Gulf region and the Arab world for a long period of time. And you possess ex- experience and knowledge that many of us lack, frankly. And uh, I wanted to take advantage of the opportunity to feel to a couple of tough questions, but it's done sure. respectively and, and with love. And uh, at the same time, trying to get you to help us unpack some of the, the latest dynamics. First, uh, the first question is, how, how is someone like you, who's been for decades a prominent Saudi journalist, and sometimes, whether right or not, uh, being presented as has his pulse on what the, the, the rulers are thinking? How does a man like that, after these decades, become opposed to that very system? What happened? I still don't want to see myself as opposed to the system, opposed to some of the policy of the system. I believe in the Saudi system, and I support the Saudi system. Meaning absolute monarchy? A reformed, hopefully. Uh, but I am not against the system, per se. Mm. But of course, if I can push for reform, I would uh, I would not hesitate to. But I know that there is no environment right now in Saudi Arabia for such a thing, especially after what happened in the Arab Spring. Why? Uh, because the failure of the Arab Spring uh, that turned off the people from pushing for reform, authoritarian is... Uh, growing rapidly throughout the Arab world. Uh, but what changed? It is the Arab Spring that changed me and changed the system. I'm a believer in uh, reform from within the system. And Saudi Arabia was doing reform since the time of King Abdullah. We all realize that we need to change in Saudi Arabia. And we were hoping to see more reform. When the Arab Spring happened, I wrote repeatedly, encouraging, hoping my government will embrace the the Arab Spring, rather confront it. Unfortunately, they chose the the other way around. Uh, There were mistakes from also the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, uh, which may be alienated, or uh, but 
that will complicate my answer. But uh, not supporting the Arab Spring, confront, confronting the Arab Spring, while I maintained my support to Arab Spring, which I saw it as an opportunity and as uh, a historical and inevitable event. It had to happen because those Arab republics have failed. I wrote repeatedly that uh, Gulf states haven't failed and they shouldn't feel threatened. The Arab Spring, they better embrace it. The more I write about that, the more I, uh, I, I was being pushed away from government circles. They did not like this narrative of, of me. Till there the come a time when I was ordered to, to shut up, not to write, not to tweet, not to do anything. Uh, that was six months before my decision to leave the country. So it was. it is all about Arab Spring. And I still, until today, hope that uh, particularly young Prince Mohammed bin Salman uh, will see the other side of the Arab Spring as an opportunity for Saudi Arabia to lead and that it cannot be fought off. But of course, it's very hard to convince. It's touching that he would speak so positively of the Arab Spring. We only think of it in relation to young people, but Jamal is about 60, and he saw its promise and importance, and still does. He also thought that the Saudi paranoia towards it was unjustified. I find it really striking how he still insisted that he was not and never had been a member of an opposition, and that the government had his support, even whilst he'd been forced to flee the country. Even when he disagreed on policy, he did so from the inside, urging the country to back the Arab Spring, while making it clear that he was doing this as someone who wished success for his government, not its overthrow. And he paid a price for offering his sincere advice. Jamal is obviously supportive of reforms, and appeals directly to Mohammed bin Salman as a supporter of the Saudi system. And yet, MBS went after him. Essentially, MBS wants to hear only the echo of his own voice. Even silence isn't enough, and no other opinion is allowed. If I may follow up, when you say you're not opposed to Saudi system per se, does that include the alliance between the House of Saud and the religious establishment? Because you have to understand that for many people outside, Saudi Arabia <coughs> stands out for the years and years that either the government or private citizens have been exporting a certain brand of ideology, religious ideology, that has caused disasters uh, uh, across the planet. Help me understand, how does one want to reform Saudi Arabia and uh, not oppose the Saudi system what, uh, with that particular duality in mind? Because I'll tell you bluntly, and this goes to the, uh, the audience, there are, there are many people around the globe, the, the, the world is much larger than the Arab world itself, will tell you, we don't care what happens in Saudi Arabia, but as long as these guys stop exporting this stuff, they, that's progress in, in our minds. So how do you square all of this? All right, since you see that as progress, you, ha you got it. It, has hap it is happening now. Hmm. Saudi Arabia right now is not supporting any Salafi movement, any mosque, a Salafi mosque, in Europe, in Northern Europe, uh, I think Salafis are going to suffer the most mm. in the coming 
and 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 many many people who are monitoring the Islamic scene throughout begin to see that that Salafism is in decline for two reasons: the defeat of ISIS and uh, the stop of uh, funding coming from Saudi Arabia. Not no no a single Saudi individual will dare now openly to send a single uh, dollar. euro dollar to a Salafi organization. And Saudi Arabia as a government have seized all of that for quite some time. So if, if you see that as a progress, then you have it. It, it, it is happening and Mohammed bin Salman should be uh, complimented for it. But again, the, issue, the, the, the notion that there is an alliance between the House of Saud or the government and the Wahhabi establishment or the religious establishment is, is overhyped. It had been proven, particularly this year, by the decision of Mohammed bin Salman to disengage from radicalism, uh, to contain the religious establishment, limit the power of the religious police, that this alliance doesn't exist. I always believe that the sole power in Saudi Arabia is the government, is the House of Saud. They are the most powerful entity. And I'm hoping that eventually the government will eventually see the people as, uh, as the partner, see the people for an alliance, not the establishment. Why the religious establishment in Saudi Arabia have lost? They lost for two reasons. Reason number one, because they couldn't provide answer for modern day Islam. The Saudi Wahhabi establishment failed at that. They couldn't find an answer, so the government had to just push them aside. Was there, was there a particular point where either King Abdullah or King Fahd or King Salman, like, was there any particular event that made them realize that the, the religious establishment has failed? I mean, what was the moment of reckoning? I, I think they realized that early on, but they tolerated it till 9-11 happened. I see. And after 9-11, there were a reluctant departure. Mohammed bin Salman was uh, assertive enough to take the, uh, uh, the final step. The, the final step, even though he is not he never uh, said that he is going after the Wahhabis, that he is going after the Ikhwan and this and that. But look, he is going... Uh, yes, yeah, and he's, he's going after, after his own establishment. Like mm -hmm. he cannot uh, uh, stop the Ikhwan because the Ikhwan are not within his domain. Uh, the, the Ikhwan uh, or uh, the, the modern Islamic movement, they have a power of their own. Mm. And they are moving... Uh, according to their uh, own uh, uh, utilization and funding mm -hmm. and, and ability in Europe and everywhere else. When Jamal said that the alliance with Wahhabism was overhyped, that's an important statement from someone on the inside. Because the government insists today that their reforms could be derailed by religious radicals, and a lot of people have picked up on this line to justify some kind of state of emergency situation and legitimize extrajudicial arrests as if there's no other choice. But Jamal is effectively saying that the purge of the religious scholars such as Salman al-Auda and their mass imprisoning without charges was completely unnecessary and cynical. There's only one power in the country, and it's not them. And so by extension, I'm sorry to interrupt you here, by extension, it's good that we, you, stopped, uh, you brought up the Ikhwan. 
in your opinion, do you think that the Ikhwan, um, talking here about the Muslim Brotherhood, uh, do you think that they too failed in a certain respect to come up with a modernity, uh, to pass the test of modernity like the Saudi religious establishment failed, or the story is more complicated? The Ikhwan made the largest mistake when they allowed Salafism to take over some of their uh, narrative, mm. particularly the Egyptian Ikhwan. While North African Ikhwan were free from that, and it allowed them to evolve much you faster. You mean Nahda and Al-Hassan? Al-Adru Al-Ihsan and the others. Uh, but uh, the Egyptian Ikhwan uh, uh, retreated from the the, the, the the progressive position that the, the early Ikhwan of the 30s and the 40s had. Uh, and they are paying a price for that. Uh, and for them to uh, move on, they need to evolve. And I feel there is a debate going now within the Egyptian Ikhwan uh, after the, uh, the coup and the, the, the major setback they are suffering. Uh, uh, the Turkish model is becoming uh, very attractive to most of young people. Which uh, we need to point out is authoritarian. It is, it, it is, it is authoritarian in its, uh, in its net structure, but in, 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 uh, in uh, day-to-day uh, the end behavior. result it, is it, authoritarian it, 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 still. It, it behavior. But, but when you compare the AKP mm-hmm. uh, realization of uh, society, it is way more advanced from the perspective of the Egyptian Ikhwan. And uh, in, in, in the AKP, in their uh, uh, realization of uh, the relation between the state and, 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 and the people, uh, their view of secularism is they are way ahead of the. Uh, but still, that's a low bar to to measure against. No, I, I don't think so. We, uh, uh, yes, the AKP is receiving is receiving great deal of criticism, but maybe we can blame it only on Erdogan. But I think I maybe, see. But 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 the party itself, it is it 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 is a, a way more advanced party compared to many Islamic party in, in our part of the world. So Jamal, this is your first time at the Oslo Freedom Forum. Have you ever been to any events similar to this? I have been to many events, but one that is similar to this, no. Uh, this is uh, this is different, it's outstanding, it's uh, interesting and very depressing. <laughs> why, why do you say it's depressing though? All right. I, mean, I mean, a lot of us find it inspiring that people are fighting. I. I wrote that down, and I, and and uh, I'm taking notes during the, the the sessions. And they said, "Is this uplifting or depressing?" Sometimes it is uplifting, but in, in the overall, is depressing. What I found more more depressing, it is not the repeated stories of abuse. That is almost the same, whether it's happening in Egypt or happening in Togo. It's the same method of uh, no respect for human rights and. Uh, arrogance of a dictator, control of one family uh, that goes on for years and years and years. And uh, What I found most depressing is the hopelessness that the world know about that. 
the Americans every year they put out a human right uh, report where they outline uh, abuse of human rights whether in uh, Kazakhstan or in Syria and they actually do nothing I felt most depressed when every time when somebody stand and say please help us and he look at the audience please help us think of Azerbaijan think of Togo and of course nothing will happen after that that what I found depressing now Jamal needs our help if Jamal has been kidnapped then this is reminiscent of the incident with Saad al-Hariri the Prime Minister of Lebanon in November 2017 whilst in Saudi Arabia on a visit he unexpectedly released a video statement announcing his resignation from his post, declaring that he feared assassination by Iran or Hezbollah, but giving no good explanation. Following frantic behind-the-scenes mediation by France, Hariri was able to leave Saudi Arabia and later returned to Lebanon to resume his job. Credible leaks indicate that he was forcibly detained in Saudi and had his phone taken away, was roughed up and forced to record that video. At the moment of this recording, it's not clear what has happened to Jamal. Turkish authorities insist that he is still in the consulate and hasn't left since entering. Saudi authorities, however, insist that he did leave the consulate. Some sources, such as the frequent Saudi whistleblower account Mujtahid, say that he was kidnapped and whisked away from Turkey to Saudi Arabia immediately upon entering the consulate, and that the current posturing is Turkey giving Saudi Arabia a chance to save face and return him quietly without incident. He also says that MBS is currently refusing. However, in the not unlikely event that Jamal releases a video statement announcing that he decided to return to Saudi Arabia of his own free will, then you'll know how credible that is. And the key difference between the two cases, Hariri was detained on Saudi territory, not in a foreign country and smuggled out. But it does show the kind of duplicity and treachery of the new Saudi leadership, and why they can't be trusted with anything. We heard in this recording Jamal's feelings for his country. If you go after someone who is so pro-Saudi like that, what would you do to someone who's actually opposed to you? If Jamal gets kidnapped, what message does it send to those who have even more disagreements than Jamal? If Mohammed bin Salman gets away with these kidnappings, some fear that the next step could be assassinations. As with other dictators, MBS escalates the more he gets away with things. And this is frighteningly reminiscent of Gaddafi, hunting down dissidents and opposition abroad. We are potentially witnessing the rise of a new Gaddafi on the international stage, completely reckless and irresponsible, taking massively destabilizing actions on a whim, with no heed to consequences or international norms, and all of this made worse by delusions of grandeur. And don't forget this quote from Maryam in episode 14. Yeah, if we can do this to a Canadian resident, what do you think we're going to do to you? No one even cares about you, no one even knows you exist, you're living in Iran. You know what I mean? It was that kind of thing another behavior in common between the Iranian regime and the Saudi one. There has been an uproar in the West over Jamal's disappearance. His gentle demeanor won over many friends everywhere he went, and he's known by pretty much everyone who ever covered Saudi Arabia. His colleagues at the Washington Post ran a blank column on Friday, where his should have been, to protest his silencing. Even Tom Friedman has objected, though he hasn't for any other political prisoner. Politicians across the free world have to take action, Dictators only truly reform under severe existential pressure. You can't appease them, you can't give them space, give them money, give them world-class PR, and also expect them to reform. That doesn't happen, it only makes them more dictatorial. 
we demand to know where Jamal Khashoggi is and we demand that he is released unharmed. Free Jamal Khashoggi.